All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. I am not solo this week. I have actually got two people with me. Um, so we're joined by Richie. And of course, Brian has returned. Uh, before we do a bit of an introduction for you, Richie, Brian, do you want to explain yourself? Why did you leave me alone for the last three weeks on the podcast? Yes, sir, I will. Uh, it's good to be back, of course, on the podcast. But um, yeah, I was on holidays, man. So uh, even us online coaches and triage method actually take holidays sometimes. So that's what I was doing. I'm currently in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, Fiona was here for the two weeks that I was away. And then there was a bonus third week when Omicron hit and uh, everything the world fell apart um, momentarily, so all the flights were cancelled. I wasn't due to come home yet anyway, but she was supposed to go home to get back to work. Um, so she eventually got home on a charter flight after a lot of stress and uncertainty and talking to the embassies and whatnot. So, yeah, that was why I wasn't on the podcast last week, um, which was unexpected. But uh, we are back now and uh, ready to keep the train going. Awesome. Awesome. Now, our very special guest today is Mr. Richie Kerwin. Um, so, Richie, I think most people listening to this will have at least some awareness of you because we, uh, we, we do share some of your stuff. Um, but for anybody that doesn't know who you are, do a little bit of an elevator pitch so, so that they have an awareness of the great man that is Richie Kerwin. Uh... So yeah, my name is Richie, um, and as we've uh, determined in the last 20 minutes of chatting, uh, I'm going to start going by the name Potato King, um, <laughs> and I really just want to promote potatoes to their rightful place as the most anabolic food stuff that you can consume. So yeah, that's pretty much what I do. And, and then thus in... you'll be honouring your ancestors as an Irishman. Absolutely. Mm. All that came before me. And if it wasn't for that bloody potato famine, we would be controlling the world right now, mm. just so everybody knows. Um, and then in, in, my, in my spare time, when I'm not potato kinging, um, I, uh, I'm doing a PhD in John Moore's, where I'm looking at muscle loss and cardiovascular disease. And I do some um, consulting work for my protein and um, a little bit of coaching on the side. And that's me. <clears throat> Richie is a very busy man. Um, but he's not, uh, he's not like, what do you have? Like 48 to 50 hours per day. You have like twice as much time as everybody else to do all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, 48 to 50 hours a day. Um, just because I've got a little device that kind of, uh, plays with the, the, the laws of, uh, space time. Um, mm. and I still manage to get sweet Beck all done. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very good. Uh, Richie has a lot going on. Um, and you know, obviously specifically the that whole area is nutrition, right? Uh, and that's what your background is in. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, that's, that's what we're going to talk about for the most part is nutrition stuff. Um, I gave Richie a, a great pitch, so I believe, and he wanted to hire me for, to be his uh, PR representative. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Richie, uh, we, we can get onto this in the podcast, uh, actually. Well, I don't need to go through it now but um i'll bring it up later on um but yeah we're just going to talk about uh, some nutrition stuff um do you want to do you want to start richie by telling us more about the, uh, the research that you're doing um why it's important um 
and then we can maybe talk a little bit about the actual PhD procedure as sure, we have yeah. been off air. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the whole idea of my PhD is to look at uh, the effects of a high protein Mediterranean diet uh, and resistance exercise um, in people with uh, cardiovascular disease. So specifically people in something called cardiac rehab. So if somebody has a heart, a heart attack or some sort of a cardiac event, they go to cardiac rehab, they do exercise, and hopefully it reduces their risk of ever having it again. Um, and what we want to do is we want to improve cardiac rehab um, and we use resistance exercise specifically as opposed to more cardiovascular style exercise um, because we think that building muscle is potentially beneficial for people with heart disease and reducing risk in the future. And we think so to, to build muscle, you need resistance exercise. You also need higher protein diets. They are really beneficial. And then we want to add in the Mediterranean diet as well, or a Mediterranean style diet, because, you know, we're working with a population in Liverpool. Um, you know, you, you can't exactly get an exact replica of a Mediterranean diet over there, but Mediterranean style is close enough. Um, and we're using that because it's, there's a lot of evidence to say that um, people following that type of eating pattern um, have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. So at the moment, um, I'm doing kind of a lot of uh, little side research projects, looking at the feasibility of the study and then looking at how muscle specifically affects cardiometabolic risk. Um, so, you know, things like heart disease, diabetes, um, so on and so forth. So that's kind of my research in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting research um, and I suppose like one of the things that you said whenever you you told me first that you were doing it is like yes this is perfect for me because it's like I get to study protein and I get to study training lifting building muscle um, so it's, it's it's very suitable for you and in, in, in your interests um, but yeah so I suppose like if if someone doesn't know what this thing called sarcopenia is um, that, that you're studying, would, uh, would you be able to summarize it a little bit just for like the layman, just so that they know, okay, what's sarcopenia and like, why should I care about sarcopenia? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think the, the easiest way to like the easiest description of it is the, the gradual loss of muscle mass as we get older. So, and, and like everybody will have seen this, like everybody, if you think of your, your grandmother, if, if people have grandparents or something like that from 10 years ago and you are 15 years ago and you look at them now, they're probably a little bit smaller. Um, and that's because as people get older, we tend to lose muscle. Um, it happens in most, most cases. Um, but we know that one of the big contributors to it is a, a lower levels of activity as we get older. So basically once people kind of retire, especially, you know, or, or get close to retirement, you know, so let's say starting in somebody's mid fifties, um, exercise tends to kind of, drop off considerably. We see a big loss in muscle mass. Um, and then we've got some other factors that kind of contribute to that as well. So um, one thing that happens as we get older is something called anabolic resistance. Um, and what that means is uh, the normal things that would stimulate muscle growth in people. So uh, resistance exercise and eating protein. Um, we actually need a bigger dose of those to get the same effect. Um, so for example, uh, you might need more intense exercise to get the same effect for building muscle, you might need to eat a, a larger dose of, of protein compared to a younger person um, to get uh, the same kind of anabolic response. And then when people get older, we've got things like um, higher levels of insulin resistance that contributes to the anabolic resistance as well. We've got 
um, higher levels of inflammation because of like a greater accumulation of visceral fat in their body. Um, we've got uh, lower levels of um, uh, muscle vasculature. So we've got lower levels of actual like the, the venous structure and the vascular structure within muscles that de declines as well, which means muscles don't get as much nutrients as before. And all of these things come together. Uh, and then, sorry, uh, obviously hormonal change as well, because, you know, in men, testosterone tends to drop from our 30s onwards. Women, massive change around the, the menopause. All of that contributes to, to lower levels of muscle. So um, it kind of sounds really, really bad, but like there, there are things that you can do to, to offset that. So that's what mm. I look into. That's what I research. Mm. Yeah, I think people are often surprised when they hear that, where it's like, oh, really? I should be like feeding my granny loads of protein shakes to, you know, make sure she stays uh, amply muscle bound. Yeah. Um, but it is the reality of it. And I think, yeah, people, I just think are surprised to hear that. It's like, oh, my, you know, the older people that I know in my life, you know, be it my parents or my grandparents or whoever, uh, potentially need to be eating more of this protein than all these young guns just trying to run around getting jacked. Um, I think there, you know, there's issues with protein digestion, right? And even just the very practical elements to this where like, as people get older, they may not be as well able to chew their food, um, you know, which is, which is relevant in some, like say meats and things like that. Um, not so much with dairy products, thankfully. Um, and, you know, potentially being able to cook for themselves if they're on their own, just there's less kind of, maybe motivation to do that and, and to take care of these things. But yeah, I mean, if people listen to this, like to take something away, it's like try and emphasize the importance of protein for the older people in your life. I think it's, it's a great thing that uh, people can become more aware of as a result of this. Absolutely. And, and like, if, if you look at like, you know, population studies at the moment, you can see that older people do tend to have really, really low intakes of protein. They've got tend to have really poor, poor protein um distribution as well so like breakfast tends to be like very very low in protein and then dinner will be higher but still quite low over the course of a day um and like things like you said people have have difficulty chewing you know they might not be able to cook as well older people they tend to have um decrements in their their ability to taste and smell things as well so that means that they they eat less full stop so it all it all contributes to it but like one thing that i really want to kind of emphasize and despite the fact that i'm a nutritionist and like you know talking about food is is my bread and butter um i have to say that if i was to only give one recommendation for sarcopenia i would be telling people get older people exercising um because i think it is far more important than getting the protein in and like we we had we, we just published a study um back in i think it was in october uh, or november <clears throat> um like looking at protein intake and you know its effects on muscle mass and older people. And like, maybe we could get into it a little bit later, but like it just, the study kind of highlights the importance of, of exercise and, you know, you need to exercise if you want to hold on to that muscle. And this is more specifically resistance training we're talking about here. Exactly. Well, exactly. Like resistance exercise, look, so we all know it, if you want to build muscle resistance exercise is the way to go. But when you're dealing with older people, like, you know, you can't say to your, you know, 80 year old granny, all right, come on, let's go to, Let's go to the gym and, um, you know, do a few sets of like five sets of 12 on like 10 different exercises. Like, you know, it, it's, it's probably not going to work as easy like that. So what I say to older people is if you're doing nothing, anything is better than nothing. And then more is better than what you're doing right now. So for example, like for some older people, like they're just not walking. And like, if you can start older people off by walking, 
that's amazing because you're working their lower body musculature and they're getting up and, and down, like just get them walking up and down the stairs a few times a day. That's great. And if they want, maybe get them doing some body weight exercises at home or, you know, get them like, you know, doing bicep curls with like uh, cans of beans or something like that. Just anything is better than nothing. Um, and if you can get them out um, doing the gardening more regularly, doing chores at home, that all contributes to maintaining healthier muscle. Obviously, though, resistance exercise is, is king when it comes to doing that. Um, but you have to kind of think like, what are they capable of and kind of think of each individual situation. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to be setting them up with like RP uh, targets or anything like that um, going about their daily life. But no, it's a really important message. And again, reasonably simple to try and implement. Like, as you say, it, it doesn't have to look like, you know, bringing your granny down to the gym and, and getting her under a load of barbell. But if she understands the importance of this stuff and the benefits to her, then maybe she can go and start doing some of this stuff. Um, yeah, it's really, really cool because again, I think people have this perception that like, you know, protein, eating protein and, and doing exercise is like a young person's game, but absolutely not. No, I, I think, I think actually the, the, it's the other way around. I think when we stop exercising, that's when we really start to get old. Um, and we really start to get the, the effects of, um, frailty and like we lose our ability to do things that we we should be able to do a little bit more easily like uh, uh and, and frailty is like one of the big side effects of sarcopenia that like i'm personally afraid of like you know if i'm because i don't want to be like 80 years old living in a house and not able to kind of get out of my bed easily in the morning or get up from a chair or you know bring my groceries home or put my groceries into the into the up the, you know the big cupboard or something like that um it's, it's important to be able to, to have a quality of life and to be able to do like normal tasks of daily living, you know? I think by the time where we get to like 80, we'll have like cybernetic enhancements anyway. So it's not going to be an issue. You know, we're all going to be like half androids. You know? I'll, I'll be so, signing up for that. Definitely. Yeah. Just like Elon Musk is just going to make us all into like half robots, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, now what, what you're saying there is interesting, like, because <clears throat> was with my own dad like he similar to yourself uh, Richie like with with a few he had some health issues um kind of around COVID and stuff like that but he since got to be in better health um and he's doing a little bit more work around the shop like not huge amounts but definitely he's out and about more and like he's been telling me oh yeah like my I can feel like my, my leg muscles are strengthening up a lot more. And that's just from like walking around and doing things a little bit more. Um, and then obviously I, I encourage him to eat lots of protein dense foods um, as well. Cause you know, he's, he's not a spring chicken, shall we say <laughs> he's, he's um, he'd be 70, 72, I think um, next year. Um, so like, you know, once you kind of, as you say, like once you start hitting, seeing that, five zero you probably want to start thinking about this uh, for for your parents or your grandparents like but i suppose is there um for for somebody that's like maybe listening thinking right okay i want to look after my i want to look after my mom my dad granny granda like what are some practical recommendations for that, that you could potentially give say if somebody's not doing any resistance training and maybe not eating enough protein uh, if somebody wanted to uh, implement some of these habits for, for their for their family 
Again, it, it depends on every situation, but like I, I think there's always kind of some sort of a workaround in each situation. And, and one of the most important things is for somebody who's not exercising is literally just getting them up and walking a little bit more regularly. And if that's like saying, look, let's set a time for you in the morning, you get up, you, you go for a, a 30 minute walk or you take the dog for a walk or if you've got a treadmill, hop on the treadmill or something like that. Um, because I know like it's, it's not always ideal uh, walking weather in Ireland. Um, just do that. Like get them, get them doing something first. And I think th- the most important thing is not to overwhelm people because if you overwhelm people, you can put them off the idea of exercise. Um, so yeah, like get, getting them in and doing a, a five-day split in the gym uh, straight off the bat is probably not a good idea and then when it comes to to protein um i think it's like finding ways that you can incorporate protein into their diet that's not going to change their diet significantly like you don't want somebody to suddenly start living off protein shakes but for example like, like what i said earlier about um breakfast being often the lowest protein meal of the day for older people so if you think about it like older people i think that the average in the uk at the moment is 12 grams of protein for breakfast um you can buy protein yogurts, like individual single serving pots of protein yogurt, which have like 20 or 25 grams of protein. And you just say, okay, have your normal breakfast and have this yogurt as well. Okay. So you're not saying to somebody have a protein shake because that's automatically a little bit weird um, for some people. Um, but you're, you're giving them something that's normal. It's a yogurt and it covers all of their, their basis for that meal. And you can say, okay, have a couple of those yogurts a day with your main meals. And you've automatically hugely increased their daily protein intake and improved their protein distribution throughout the day. So I think of little things like that. Um, and for some people, protein shakes might be the option. They might, they might actually love them, um, you know, and, and like they can have them on top of their, their regular meal um, and it's easy to incorporate. Um, or it might be just as simple as like, okay, let's put a little bit of a, a larger portion of meat at each meal or something like that. You know, so there's lots of different workarounds. Mm. Yeah, I think those suggestions, especially for the from the nutrition standpoint, like they they work for everybody, not even just older people. But I, I do love and appreciate the simplicity of all those interventions, and they're often what we would do. Like if, if someone comes to us, as is nearly always the case, not eating enough protein, it's like it's those exact recommendations we're going to give. Like you said, not trying to change what they're currently doing too much, just trying to augment that. Um, and like, you know, I, I don't know about you, Rishi, but me and Dean eat tons of those protein yogurts and, and like protein milks and um, all that stuff because they're tasty and they're convenient and they're high quality. And, you know, especially for the older person as well, again, if they have at least difficulty chewing, maybe, maybe not so much helpful in like difficulty swallowing, but, you know, those things are easy to consume, right? Um, so, yeah, it works. It's such a simple fix if you like uh, that could yield a large benefit yeah always look for like the easy option um like you know the, I, I, you don't get any points for over complicating your lifestyle indeed indeed so tell us a little bit about this process of uh, actually getting a phd richie <laughs> So don't do it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a piece of cake. It's walk in the park, guys. Uh, no, look, look. What, what I say to people is, if somebody wants to do a PhD, like for me, and like obviously every situation is absolutely different. But I say is, make sure whatever you're doing that it's something that you're actually passionate about and that you actually enjoy. So like I, I remember when I told you the first time, Dean, that I was doing the PhD, and I told you that I it. I, I loved the title because it was, it seemed like it was made for me and I still mm. feel that way. 
and, and that's how I still feel about it because of all the different aspects of things that are involved in it. I, I, like, I love everything about it. I love the fact that we've got resistance exercise. We're looking at cardiovascular disease. We're looking at high protein diets. Um, we're looking at the Mediterranean diet, like, you know, and that was a massive part of my, my master's degree. Um, and I, I, I loved all those aspects. I still love all those aspects and it helps me get through this because like the PhD gets progressively more difficult because you just, and like, you know, it's probably my, my fault as well. I take on a lot of work on the side um, uh, as well, but it gets progressively difficult over time and it will get to a point where it feels very heavy um, to, to, for want of a better word. Um, but anyway, look, um, so in, in the PhD, you basically come up with a concept um, for what you want to research. Our concept is muscle mass and cardiovascular disease. And then we, you come up with a series of experiments to just test um, you know, how is your hypothesis looking? Now, obviously, because of COVID, uh, we were planning on running an intervention and we were, it was all ready to go. And we got, um, we got ethics approval literally just before COVID hit. Uh, so our intervention has not happened. And my intervention now is not going to be part of my PhD. So instead, we're doing a number of other publications and other papers. Um, so we're doing a, a look at um, basically the effects of Prote uh, sorry, higher muscle mass on uh, cardiovascular disease. We're using population studies instead. Um, and what we're going, I'm doing instead now is I was going to submit a thesis, uh, a normal thesis. Now what I'm doing is I'm sitting, submitting, a th I will be submitting a thesis by publication, which means I, I publish all of these papers first, I put them all together into a thesis, and then I throw it at my, you know, uh, whatever my uh, um, adjudicators and I, I walk away and hopefully they'll give me a PhD at the end of it. That's the, that's the idea anyway. Mm. Dr. Kerwin in the house. <laughs> well, fingers crossed that's that's what'll happen. And you know, I'll be the, the guy on a plane, somebody to shout out, is there a doctor on board and I can raise my hand? Like, can you help this lady? I was like, no, not at all. Does she need anything to do with potatoes? <laughs> Does she need to get jacked right now? Um, a question uh, a question has just occurred to me that may arise in some people's minds when we're talking about this. So um We've seen a lot over the last few years, unfortunately, a lot of professional bodybuilders, either present or past, dying at quite a young age, right? Um, and, you know, these guys are extremely muscular. And you're telling us, Richie, that it's important to be extremely muscular. Um, and a lot of these guys are, are dying from heart attacks and things. So I don't know, I don't know if you want to talk to the audience a little bit about what might be going on there. Versus I, I, what you're talking about. I'll yeah. talk. I'll talk within my my own kind of like um, my own uh, let's say limited um, kind of knowledge on, on the topic. But one thing is, I'm not saying that we need to get everybody extremely muscular. We just need to get people better muscled than than they currently are. Okay. So like you know, there, there may be uh, let's say a population average for musculature at the moment. Being above average is good in terms of. Uh, longevity in terms of freedom from um, uh, debilitating illness and chronic disease as we get older, um, having more muscle is beneficial. So like we, we, we see it in, for example, there, there's something called the, the obesity paradox where we see in, in, in cardiac populations, uh, people who have a higher body mass index tend to live longer than people with a lower body mass index. And that kind of, that almost seems counterintuitive because you want to think higher BMI, higher body fat, Mm, that can't be good for heart health. But 
what's probably going on there is not BMI doesn't just measure body fat, it just measures weight. So that we we kind of one of our theories is that the the obesity paradox is caused by greater muscle mass in some individuals, and they, that muscle mass is protective. We also know if you look at population studies, people who, um, like I said, who have higher muscle mass compared to the average tend to live longer. Um, and they also have much lower levels of uh, things like um, diabetes, which makes perfect sense because our muscle is like one of the, the most important disposal areas for, for carbohydrates in our body. And it really helps us to, to regulate uh, glucose levels within our blood. Um, so that makes, makes perfect sense as well. Um, so you don't need to be huge for that to happen. You just need to be active and have a decent level of muscle mass um, and a decent level of strength, because actually more so than muscle mass, strength is probably a, um, a better indicator of, of, of long-term health because strength is probably a better indicator of muscle quality because you can still have relatively large muscles that can be filled with fat. So like you can have intramuscular fat and that's not exactly a, a good thing. Um, so better quality muscle is a stronger muscle and a healthier muscle. Um, and then with a lot of individuals who are like, like you've mentioned, who are, are dying suddenly, um, like I'm not going to, to claim to, to understand what's going on, but one of my colleagues um, at, at John Morris is actually at Leeds Beckett now, um, Declan McCullough. He did a, a really, really interesting review paper on um, cardiac risk and cardiometabolic risk in people who use anabolic steroids. And there is a risk involved. And I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people who do use steroids are aware of that risk. Um, there are certain ways to mitigate it um, that, uh, you know, we won't get into at all, but like, I'm not asking anybody to, to start taking steroids and get like Olympia level jacked for, for um, the sake of their heart health. I think like, you know, what you can do with a normal workout routine, you know, just taking some normal over-the-counter supplements um, is, is perfectly adequate. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's um, something that you said there was pretty interesting. I might rewind because um, I'm actually interested to know myself. So mentioned some muscle is better quality than other muscle, um, partly due to intramuscular triglycerides and stuff like that, <laughs> or intramuscular fat. Could you like maybe expand on that a little bit more um, in terms of like what the differences is between like the different qualities that sure. yeah so yeah as we get older one thing that um happens is like when we become less active we we tend to see uh, an increase in body fat and a decrease in muscle mass over time um like i mentioned that's part of sarcopenia and with the increase in, in body fat is is uh, it's part of a condition called sarcopenic obesity so the combination of low muscle mass and higher body fat now as we get older there tends to be a kind of skew and distribution of body fat where we see a, a larger increase in um, visceral fat accumulation. So visceral fat is the fat that we accumulate around or sometimes within specific organs. Um, and it can also, uh, we can also see an increase in intramuscular fat. So that's fat that we store uh, within our muscle fibers around our muscle cells. Okay. Now, some types of intramuscular fat um, can be beneficial. So for example, if you look at, uh, uh, let's say endurance athletes, uh, like endurance cyclists, you will see a large amount of intramuscular fat because they're, they, they've built up uh, the capacity to use that fat efficiently for, for fueling their, their long workouts. Um, in older people that aren't exercising, it's not um, particularly beneficial and it's often associated with uh, um, 
insulin resistance. So um, basically poor glucose control. And uh, what can happen is when you've got those higher levels of fat, like fat obviously adds volume to a, a muscle. So if it's like contained within a muscle fiber, it's going to add muscle or around a muscle fiber even, it's going to add volume. Um, and like there are some studies that do like cross sections through muscle and like, you know, th with MRIs and you, they can give you a, an idea of what the insides look like. And a, a good healthy muscle looks nice and dense, whereas an unhealthy muscle, you'll see like these like little accumulations of fat throughout the tissue. Um, and overall, if you look at the overall outside kind of like perimeter, let's say of the muscle, they could be the same size, but one could have a considerably larger amount of fat, which is not a good indication of muscle health or quality. And then another issue as we get older is we get devascularization of muscle, which means that we get, so within our muscles, we've got lots of little capillaries that are going throughout our muscles and they're feeding it. Um, and in older people, we tend to lose some of those capillaries, um, uh, as well. Uh, and that means you get poor blood flow to the muscle. They're, le they're less strong. They're, you know, and then, like I said, it contributes to anabolic resistance. And, and one of the great things about exercise is that it helps to reduce intramuscular fat and it helps to revascularize muscle as well. So like, it's like, you know, pe people say this all the time, but if you, if you could put the, the advantages and the benefits of exercise into a pill, you'd be sorted for life. You would have the the golden tickets to money forever, basically, mm. but it's not going to happen. You have to do the work folks. Yeah. So what I'm, what I'm hearing there is that a muscle that's full of synthol is not a healthy muscle <laughs> and not good in terms of what we're talking about here. No, no, and that's, uh, that's not that's what I'm saying. That's just literally injecting oil into your muscle. Yeah. Uh, I, not, I literally, not. I can't get, I just don't get those guys. Like, you know, <clears throat> Like yeah, for, for anybody who's not familiar, like, you know, just look up synthol muscles and you'll see like these guys who have injected this oily substance into their pecs or into their, into their biceps or their triceps. And they look ridiculous. Like you'd look at them and say, have they been Photoshopped? Oh no, that's their actual bodies. And they think they look good. Yeah. There's severe, you know, body dysmorphia and things going on there, Incredible. like psychological issues. Um, where people just feel like they, they need to do this to look good, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, thanks for that, Richie. That was really interesting. And uh, I learned some stuff there as well myself. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about as well is because it's in this area that we're discussing here. So you mentioned the Mediterranean style diet a few times. Um, People may be somewhat aware of it. I talk about the Mediterranean diet a lot um, in different capacities, but do you want to tell people a little bit about what that is and why is it good from a cardio metabolic health standpoint? I think that would be an interesting one for people to get. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Mediterranean diet is very, very hard to define because you know the Mediterranean region is really, really big and you've got a lot of different cultures. You've got a lot of different um, food cultures as well uh, around there and people just eat different things. But uh, to give people an idea of it, and, and actually just before I, I go on, I prefer to say a Mediterranean dietary pattern as opposed to a Mediterranean diet, because I think if you give something a diet, you're making it very, very, you're giving it a very, very defined set of limitations. Whereas if you say pattern, you know, you can talk about a kind of a style of eating that involves different aspects that you can kind of pick, almost pick and choose from. Um, and you can be more like a pattern or less like a pattern, depending on how many of those aspects you decide to incorporate. So with a Mediterranean diet, I suppose the key defining feature of it um, with, throughout the entire Mediterranean region is 
the principal added oil in the diet being, or added fat in the diet being uh, olive oil. Okay. And um, yeah, like if we talk about olive oil, why it's beneficial. One, it's a monounsaturated fat. We know that monounsaturated fats can be beneficial in terms of helping to reduce cholesterol if they're replacing saturated fats in the diet. But on top of that, and I think like more research needs to be done on this, but there's a decent amount at the moment. I think one of the main contributions of olive oil in the Mediterranean diet is the contribution of polyphenols. And what they may be doing is helping to reduce oxidation of uh, certain lipid subfractions. So things like LDL cholesterol within our body. Um, So they may not lower LDL a lot, but they may prevent LDL from being oxidized. And why is that a problem? Well, LDL is uh, one of the causative agents of atherosclerosis, or basically when we get a buildup of a plaque within our, um, our arteries. And atherosclerosis is what contributes to heart disease. And basically LDL circulates in our blood. It can get into the, um, the epithelium of our, like the, the layer within our, uh, our arteries. And if it becomes oxidized, it can contribute to the formation of these plaques. So if you can reduce that level of oxidation um, through diet and having a diet high in polyphenols, that can help potentially reduce the progression of atherosclerosis. So that's one potential benefit of um, the the olive oil in the diet. Um, Another aspect then of Mediterranean diets, they tend to be higher in nuts and nuts have similar effects as well. So again, they're high in antioxidants, polyphenols as well, which can contribute to reducing um, oxidation of LDL. They're high in unsaturated fats, which can help to reduce our cholesterol levels in general. Uh, Very, very high in fiber, which is another benefit because that helps to reduce cholesterol. Um, And they can also have plant sterols as well, which is another cholesterol lowering effect. Um, So those are good. Uh, Besides that, what have we got? Um, Higher intakes of fruit and vegetables. So usually you're you're talking about like six servings at least a day of fruit and vegetables. Um, Lower reliance on processed foods. Um, So things like processed cakes and pastries. Um, Lower reliance on red meat um, and uh, a moderate intake of uh, things like uh, fish and uh, lean meat and lean dairy products as well. Um, not necessarily lean, even full fat dairy is quite, quite common in some of the Mediterranean regions. Um, and I'm just trying to think of some other aspects. Oh yeah. One, we, we have a Mediterranean diet scoring tool. And one of the things that they like to see is a uh, uh, tomato intake. So like tomatoes specifically, again, because they're very, very high in polyphenols, antioxidants, um, whole grains as well, um, legumes. So things like beans, peas, uh, lentils, all of these really, really high in fiber help to lower cholesterol, high in polyphenols, um, and then a little bit of red wine as well. Okay. Um, and the reason I say pattern is because actually a couple of months ago, a paper came out talking about a South Korean Mediterranean style diet. Um, and it was really, really cool. And they, they were really good to, they, they included some photographs of some of the foods that participants were receiving. And it was, they were receiving Korean food, but it was Korean food done in the style of what I've just said. So more whole grains, more legumes, um, using more olive oil. Uh, but like you can do that and you can still have delicious Korean food or you can have delicious Japanese food or delicious Chinese food. You just need to adapt it a little bit. And it's a Mediterranean style Korean diet or a Mediterranean style. They've done it in India as well. Um, so I, I think people need to get the idea of it being like, uh, 
but you know, just pass the lasagna. Get that idea out of your head because that's not what it is. It's like very, very varied, um, and you can accommodate. Like so, for example, our research we're doing a Mediterranean style, North Eastern UK diet because we're in Liverpool. So I, yeah. I I spent a lot of my time at the start of the PhD just adapting recipes to make them more Mediterranean mm. style. Very cool. Yeah, that's super interesting, man. Um, I'd actually like to hear more about the, the recipe adaptations, if you don't mind. But then also, like, if you just give us some examples of that. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't aware of the South Korean uh, Mediterranean-style diet. Uh, I, I was, I'm pretty familiar with the modified one that they use in the SMILES trial, you know, that research Australia. into mental health. And that's in Australia, right? So obviously very much not the Mediterranean. So there's, there's some kangaroo and still featured in there. And they purposely added more red meat to that because of the nutrients it contains and how that pertains to mental health. Um, which is another part I was going to ask you is like, did you have to modify your approach here to make it higher protein than a typical Mediterranean diet? And then maybe, maybe just tell us a bit about that as well. So there's the recipe adaptation and then adaptations for increasing protein intake, which may be, you know, when you combine, combine a Mediterranean type dietary pattern with this high protein diet, maybe you have like the perfect diet, um, you know, super that's diet. That's what I'm calling it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like t- trademark potato king. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So the adaptations are like, I think adapting a recipe is relatively easy if you enjoy cooking. And I, I love cooking. I always have. Um, so I can look at a recipe and I can say like, like a regular recipe and say, okay, I want to adapt this to make it a little bit easier. So for example, like one easy ad- adaptation, you've got spaghetti. Okay. What regular spaghetti, what do you do? Switch it with whole grain spaghetti. Fantastic. You're done. Um, or if you want to include some legumes instead of using regular, um, regular pasta, throw in some legume pasta so you can get pasta made from chickpeas or, but that's not very, very common. So we haven't used uncommon ingredients in our list. Um, but we do use a lot of baked beans, for example. So uh, for example, I've done, um, just to give you an example, there, there's a dish in Liverpool called Scouse. Okay. Uh, that's actually a dish, um, there in Liverpool and Scouse is literally it's beef stew. So like if your mammies make beef stew, I can guarantee it'll be very, very similar to the stuff that your mammies make because I've had Scouse. It's lovely. Um, and to adapt it, this is like some of the easy things we've done is we use leaner cuts of beef, beef, excuse me. The principal oil that we use for preparing it is olive oil. So we add in extra olive oil to make sure people are getting plenty of heart healthy olive oil. Um, we use a load of vegetables going into it as well, along with the beef, which is fine because like you'll usually find things like carrots in there. You'll find some potatoes. Um, we add in uh, a little bit of tomato paste into the sauce as well uh, to get some more mm. tomatoes in there. Um, and that contributes to the flavor. Uh, and then what else do we put in? Um, oh yeah, loads, uh, we'll throw in some beans as well. And one thing that you can do with the beans is like, if people don't like to see beans in their scouts is you can blend all of the beans up into a paste, throw it in. You've got your thickening agent in there as well. Um, so you've got this like really, really high protein, high vegetable, like moderate fat. And it's mostly unsaturated fat dish. Um, that's full of fiber, very, very filling. Um, and it tastes like, you know, it like, it, okay, it's not going to be as nice as uh, a scouse that is made with like, you know, really, really uh, fatty chuck or something like that. Um, but it's really good. Uh, like I, mm. I've actually been making it for my family for the past few months that I've been back here in Ireland. Um, like I just call it stew. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, 
simple things like that, you can adapt recipes quite easily. And then with, with ours, like to, to increase the protein intake, that is massively important because like traditionally Mediterranean diets aren't seen as being high protein. So we just get a Mediterranean diet and we just slap some protein in there. So like, let's add a little bit lean. Uh, so uh, like I'll give people swaps within their, their diet um, guides that I said, give them. So like, for example, instead of getting regular sausages, you can buy low fat sausages, which are like only 3% fat or 5% fat, which is hugely different from your regular 25% fat sausages. And, mm. um, you know, going instead of like having regular bacon, I, I don't want to change people's diets and say, okay, you can't have this. Yeah. I don't want any of like major restriction like that, but I'm saying let's reduce these. Let's swap some of these out. So instead of like regular rashers, let's get some bacon medallions. Um, instead of going for like fatty cuts of like um, minced beef, sorry, get the, the leaner minced beef instead. Okay. So like making all of these little simple changes. And then when it comes to like um, their carbohydrate sources, instead of regular bread, go for, you know, whole wheat bread, regular pasta, whole wheat pasta. Um, let's incorporate more tinned beans into your diet, stuff that you can get easily in the supermarket. It, all, it, all, it has to be easy for people to buy. So like my kind of qualifier for that was like, if you can't get it in Aldi or Little, like let's not include it in the recipe kind of kind of thing yeah steady i'm just thinking there the, the meme of mm, good scouse <laughs> uh, yeah no like that that sounds class and i've never heard of people blending beans to make bean paste to add as a thickening agent if you don't want to actually see the beans in your dish uh which is great to know and that's one of the many reasons i like talking to you richie um as you mentioned there, you like to cook and I'll have to testify to the fact that your recipes and the, the cooking instructional stuff you do on your Instagram and social media, wherever else is really, really good. I always take something from like, yeah, shit, that's, that's, there's some good ideas in there um, that are new to me and nice recipes that are tasty. So that's a plug for Richie's, uh, well, all of Richie is like as he is, but also his specific cooking stuff. Um, I, I need to get a recipe book out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, um, yeah. The the bean one is definitely I've not not heard of that. That's I'm gonna I'm gonna test that one out now. Next next chance I get. I don't, a lot of my kitchen utensils are not in this apartment, but when I go home for Christmas. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to give this a whirl. Um, but, but but that's all. Yeah. That's all from experience as well. Like is like just. I think when you work with people and you you cook with people, like my when I cook for my my parents, like I cook for my dad. I noticed. Oh, he does not like finding. A, like I love butter beans. I don't know about you guys. Like it's a weird thing mm. to say. I love butter beans. Um, I love butter beans in a curry. So I've made curries for my parents, and I've literally seen my dad pick the beans out and move them to the side of his plate because he doesn't like them. And, and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I, don't, I don't like them. I said, you don't know, you've never had them. You, had, you don't, don't even try. Oh, I don't like them. So like the next time I made it, I just literally blended up all the beans and I put them into the curry and I got this lovely, thick, lush sauce. And he was like, yeah. oh. he was like, oh, good. You didn't put the beans in again. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you like them now, don't you? You like those beans now, huh? Take that fiber. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, I know. I like it's so typical as well. So, um, just such simple workarounds, uh, are great to know about. Um, yeah, what will we move on to next, Dean? Um, so I was gonna ask him, like, what what's your thoughts on organ meats, Richie? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's God, a, Dean, where Dean, are you going with this? What a segue! Do you, hey? do you think? Do you think 
I, I was just thinking, right, you know, fair play, like, you know, you're talking about like the vegetables and the nuts and the olive oils, but I was thinking maybe I would just eat nothing but organ meats. What, like, do you think that would be a good idea? Even though you just said like all that stuff about like plants being healthy. I think that's a lot of nonsense. I think just nothing but organ meats. I think that makes a lot more sense. And you're going to cook these then or not cook them? I'm just going to eat them raw. And I'm also going to like make sure that I am outside half naked. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, you know, I've got a sword and, you know, anything that you can like think of that's like super manly. I'm just going to like make sure that that's part of the whole process of eating these organ meats. <laughs> I'm going to have to give people for, for a bit of context for all this. Not, yeah, just give them some context. Please. Yeah, please. <laughs> so we're, um, we're, taking, we're taking the piss out of this guy on Instagram. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't even be bringing attention to him. But uh, nah, people don't know that it's, that it's a piss take. Um, so there's this guy on Instagram and uh, his name is Liver King. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you go on his page, like it's just this guy that's obsessed with eating in what he calls a way that is consistent with our ancestors, which has all sorts of logical fallacies um, built into it. But um, yeah, it's just this guy that basically eats, you know, similar. It's, it's not, I have seen him eat potatoes. Um, so it's not like close to carnivore. Um, but yeah, he eats in this way that's that he says is consistent with what his ancestors ate, and it's a lot of liver and heart and eggs and and all sorts of raw though raw as well. Raw. Yeah, yeah. Raw, raw bull testicles is another one that he likes to go for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, up those testosterone levels get those bull balls into you. Go straight to the source, pal. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just thought of it. Oh literally wretched um i look i I've, i'm gonna I'm go, i want to say something about this like not specifically about the liver king because like like he is funny and I, i'm going to apologize to anybody listening to this who does actually decide to like do a search for liver king because unfortunately he's now going to appear in your instagram or facebook feed you know for the rest yeah. of your life um <laughs> but the carnivore diet right okay uh, i don't think i've given like an official uh, um my official thoughts on it um ever so like you know you're here let's do a bit this of an, an exclusive. exclusive yeah oh yeah, yeah absolutely like so there are like one actually a study study came out um last week uh which was a, a questionnaire based study of um whether people enjoyed their time <laughs> on the um the uh the carnivore diet i'm actually i'm writing a letter to the editor at the moment um just to complain about that uh not to complain but just to say that there are issues with uh the methodology that they used in their questionnaire but like for anybody who's not familiar carnivore diet basically um recommends that people just eat meat okay or uh, in some cases you can eat some dairy or you can eat some eggs but like the main one is you can eat meat and if you're super strict carnivore it's just beef and salt apparently that's what you want um it's a highly restrictive diet um, and some people absolutely rave about it. And I'll be honest, I have no issue with somebody who wants to follow the diet if that's what they want to do or any diet for that matter. I have issues with people who talk absolute bullshit when it comes to what a potential diet can or can't do. And you get a lot of that in the carnivore community. Um, but I'm going, to give, I'm going to cut it a bit of slack and say that there is a potential use for the carnivore diet in some individuals that may have autoimmune disease and the reason i say may is because we do not know because we have absolutely no uh research on the carnivore diet 
we have no research on the long-term effects. We have no research on actual benefits. We have nothing. Like carnivore dietists like to cite research talking about how good it is or how how good it is for long-term health. We have no research on it at all. Um, so that's why it pisses me off when people talk about it like we do. We do need research. And that's one of the things I said in the, this letter to the editor, editor that I wrote um, with a, a couple of other um, authors um, is that we, we want to see more research because, you know, people are following it. We want, want to know what's happening. But there does seem to be anecdotally, and I have to say anecdotally, that some people seem to get benefit for it um, in terms of people with some sort of autoimmune disease. Now, is it true? Does it help everybody with autoimmune disease? Absolutely no idea at all. We have no research to say that it does. But I think we have grounds to say, maybe let's look into it. But I definitely don't think we have grounds to say, if you have an autoimmune disease, yeah, get on carnivore. It's going to save your life. We just, we cannot say that. But that's what some people are saying. And like, as any evidence-based or science-based practicing nutritionist will attest to, you have to be very, very cautious and base your recommendations on the, like, let's say the body of evidence that we have. And there is no body of evidence for a carnivore diet at all. It's, it's just ludicrous that people are claiming that it's beneficial. And then obviously there's some downsides to it. The major downside being like a lack of fiber. And we know fiber is beneficial in terms of reducing our risk of um, uh, lower bowel disease um, and uh, high levels of cholesterol and uh, carnivore diets tend to lead to high levels of cholesterol in people, which can be majorly, uh, is a major contributor to atherosclerosis. Now there are some people in the community who are claiming that if you're fully carnivore and you don't have any carbs in your diet, that's okay that your LDL is high. But again, we have no evidence to say that at all. Uh, and it, I just find it ridiculous that we're having these arguments, but these arguments are between, let's say evidence-based scientists and qualified nutritionists and people who like to eat meat all the time and have no qualifications whatsoever and get all of their nutrition information from YouTube or Facebook or Instagram. Or Joe Rogan. Or Joe Rogan. Oh, sorry, that is YouTube. Sorry, yeah, it's, it's yeah. predominantly YouTube, yeah. Well, look, look, hey, and look, I, I really enjoy Joe Rogan's podcast, but the amount of bullshit that gets, like, like popularized because of his podcast is just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. He only had, like, we've had, he had Lane Norton on, which was, like, a more tame conversation. And he had Stefan Guine on. And did. Stefan didn't represent himself that well. I think he got a little bit, he got a little bit, what would you say? Flustered. He got a little bit, yeah, he got flustered and irritated um, with uh, Taubes. Um, so, yeah. he did, you know, and it just made the whole process of but, conversation. But, but there, like, I think there's, there's a major issue there. You've got Stefan Guine, who is like, you know, arguably one of the finest nutritionists, nutritional scientists mm. around arguing with a journalist. Yeah. It's just ludicrous that we have these arguments. We have, uh, what is it, Ivor Cummings? What, what's his, he's like finances or something like that, or a statistician or he's something? He's an engineer or something. Or an engineer. Yeah. And he's giving people advice on, on COVID vaccines. What the hell is that about? Mm. yeah I, I might start giving advice for um plumbing yeah that, that would be a good idea because i because the other day i just bled my radiators and whenever i was like whenever i done it i was like yes i'm really proud of myself i'm going to start offering uh plumbing services now so what do you think uh, of that? youtube I think channel i think it's, I think it's Are, yeah any of you guys channel. 
interested in getting into investing. If you want to give me all of your money, I will invest it because I have been reading <laughs> stuff about investing for the past couple of months and I am pretty up to date. I, I, I'm pretty sure I can beat the market. Okay, so just give it to me. Uh, and, and like, if, if I sound like I'm being facetious, it is because I have to be with this because like, it yeah. genuinely does frustrate me um, because we, like some people have just thrown like science out the window like it's it's nothing and yeah so that's actually i think this is a good segue right because obviously we're all you know everybody in this conversation has we're, we're very aware of the scientific process and how it works and you know what's evidence-based what's not but you know when you're talking to the average person like i'm talking to my friends like as i was saying off air, we were talking about one of my mates, he was talking about Turkestrone and Tomcat Alley, these supplements that increase testosterone. And I was trying to explain to him why you need to chill out on those a little bit because, you know, the evidence just isn't there. Um, but like, say, for example, Richie, how like for people that maybe they struggle to discern what's good information and what's bad information, like how would you be able to communicate the scientific process to someone that's maybe a little bit all over the place in terms of like, ah, I'm just, I'm reading these things and watching these YouTube videos. And I'm just, I don't know kind of who to take seriously. Like, is there any way that, is there any process that you have with regards to science communication for the average person? I I think it's, that's a really, really tough question. And it's, but it's something that I've thought about in the past. And I, I, I still find it hard to come up with an answer. But the one thing I say to people is, is if you hear somebody talking and they are speaking as if they have absolutely no doubts about what they are saying, that is a major red flag, in my opinion, because science by its nature is, is it's, it's an iterative process. OK, and like just to give an example, we're let's say we're doing some research in nutrition on a specific topic um, and we do one study. Okay, one study is just that. It is one study. Okay, the type of study that we do, is, you know, is important. It kind of says, like, how credible is, is, is it? Like, how many people did we have in the study? What were the methods, methods that we use? The only people who can really analyze that are scientists, people who have a lot of experience with, with research. Now, that one study doesn't really tell us a lot. But despite the fact that, you know, one study doesn't tell us a lot, we will have people who you know, will hold on to one study like it, it, it tells us absolutely everything about a, a, a certain subject. Now, say so, another study comes along and tells us the opposite. Okay, well, do we know, do we know much more? No, not, we don't really. Like, you know, so like one study says one thing, the other study says another thing. It's tough to, to interpret that. So we look at the quality of the studies, which one is better. But then over time, what we get is we get more studies done on the same topic with more populations, with more people, with bigger numbers. Um, and over the course of a long amount of time, we have all, all of these different studies, but not all of them give the exact results. In terms like, you know, what we learn as scientists, we can interpret all of that data together to give us a general idea of what we think truth. Because we're always looking for truth. That, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the answer. But it's very, very difficult to get that true answer. So what we're looking for is approximation to the truth or the closest that we can get to the truth. And the more research we do, the 
So like, just as an example, like I mentioned LDL cholesterol and, and atherosclerosis. We have been doing research on atherosclerosis for the best part of like for a and we know that LDL cholesterol is the cause agent of heart disease. We know that for a fact because so much evidence. Over oh, recording again. Sorry, guys, my okay. connection cut out there. No worries. We we have it from research in animals. Um, we have it from research in cell culture. We have all of these different sides coming together, huge amounts of studies. And it says LDL cholesterol, uh, high levels of LDL cholesterol within your blood lead to uh, a greater risk of atherosclerosis. And yet we still have individuals who will look at one study and say, oh yeah, these guys here, they had, a, they had higher cholesterol, but they had lower levels of heart disease. Boom, you're wrong. <laughs> That's not how science works. It, it it's not and it's incredibly frustrating because a lot of these yahoos and gobshites that are out there are really really charismatic and they can take that one study and they can talk it up yeah and they can say holy crap look at this this is the definitive evidence that ldl doesn't cause heart disease boom out i'm showing all of those scientists idiots that they are wrong Somebody goes in talking like that, you're going to be like, holy crap, i got to listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking yeah. He's confident. Yeah. Because scientists, real scientists, don't talk like that. We talk like everything is within context. We have to talk within context. We have to say, look, in this situation, with the evidence that we have, we can say that this is probably going to be the case. That's how an actual scientist talks. A scientist does not say, yo, LDL doesn't cause heart disease. Boom, done. That's <laughs> not drop. how it works. Drop the mic, yeah. <laughs> Um, scientists don't carry mics. There you go. Okay. <laughs> like, um, but, see, but this is a major problem with, with science today. Like th those people who are, who uh, know the most are not very, very confident or not very, very good at um, getting the me their message across to the public. Um, and that, that means we have to rely on the media. The media is shit because media loves, you know, catchy headlines. Or then we've got like journalists in the case of like um, Gary Taubes, who is a, an excellent speaker, an excellent writer, and he can create a fantastic story around anything, but he's not a scientist and he gets stuff wrong. Like all the time, I'm going to say now, like based on his recent body of work, when it comes to talking about low carb diets. <sighs> ah, sorry. Um, got a bit of a rant. Or he was here, he'd be like, hey, Richie, why are you being so salty? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, but, but look, like, yeah, and uh, sorry, anyway, just like, just for context there for anyone listening who doesn't know, uh, Gary Taubes uh, writes a lot about salt, right? That's that's why that why I said that, and why the lads absolutely lapped it up. But uh, I appreciate not everyone will get that. Um, <laughs> but, but but look, it, it's like people like to hear the sensational sensationalist stuff, and people also w will listen to stuff that they want to hear. So if you tell somebody, yeah, you can eat steak and butter all the time. Mm. Hell yeah, that sounds like my kind of diet. I'm going to find the research that supports that, you know, as opposed to, you know, well, maybe reduce your red meat intake a little bit, mm. and, you know, maybe throw in a few more vegetables and a little, little bit, few beans here and there. You know, that might be a good idea too. Ah, that doesn't sound as good. I, like, this is another thing. I'm convinced that a lot of people that go on a carnivore diet just don't like cooking or don't yeah. like, <laughs> like, it's like, oh, I can make a steak. Boom. Yeah. yeah just throw oh, it on. 
Although some of their steaks look poxy, man. I know someone who did a, a carnivore diet before and the steaks look fucking wrote off. Like, wouldn't want to be eating them. Um, so they can't even do that right. But uh, <laughs> what was I, oh, I going to say? Oh, it's gone out of my head now. I was going to say. Um, but, but, yeah, like, like we, humans are, are really, really terrible at, like, you know, um, uh, looking for biased information. You know, like oh yeah, I remember now what it was. Sorry, uh, you, you were, when you were talking about that um, kind of survey paper that you were talking about a few minutes ago. You know, yeah. you said in your stories, like you saw people say because you, you like to hang out in these groups and forums to see what's going on, um, and you saw people say like, "Let's show them the kind of yeah. diet works." Yes. And that just says it all, really. It, it's terrifying because, like, because I I remember specifically when they were recruiting people for this study, like last year, and. Yeah. So in the, in these carnivore groups, so like for anybody who has a social life and doesn't like decide to join these, you know, far, these militant like diet groups, like which could be militant vegan or militant carnivore um, in these groups, they often hate the other side. Like, so the, like, but I find that the hate is particularly strong in the carnivore side against the vegans you know, or anything that's anti-carnivore. They're like, we hate those guys and we want to show everybody how good the carnivore diet is. So if you're recruiting people from these groups where people are like, yeah, we want to show how good the carnivore diet is. We're going to show that we're good on it. How much can you rely on the quality of information that you're getting from people filling out that survey? And that was like one of the major points in our, um, in our, uh, our, our letter to the editor, uh, which I need to publish today or submit today at least anyway. Um, but yeah ridiculous mm. yeah it's 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 pretty nuts how um how far how deep people go into these tribes shall we say um you know tribalism is a, is a big issue it. especially people COVID, want like, to feel part of something you know yeah yeah and like that's even like even we're not immune to it no you no know, as the as the evidence-based you know community we we can like end up in this little echo chamber where it's like you know we don't see, or we don't really open ourselves up sometimes to some of these potentially interesting ideas from outside of this little bubble that we call evidence-based practice or nutrition or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, um, and then there's problems with that as well, like, because I suppose now everybody is calling themselves evidence-based. So it has lost, the term has sort of lost meaning. (laughs) To be, to be honest, I, I find like, I, and I know I used the term earlier, I find the term evidence-based a little bit cringe right now, just because um, it's, it, it doesn't mean what it, it used to mean. And mm. it's just kind of used willy-nilly, I suppose. Mm. Uh, anybody can use it if they want. Yeah. Uh, like, look at my one study. I'm evidence-based. Boom. Um, yeah. And technically, you know, it, it, what they're saying is based on some form of evidence. just might be shit evidence, you know? Mm. Yeah. Laurent uh, Bannock who does the, is the guy that runs the IOPN, he doesn't, he, he says evidence informed, which I think is, is maybe a slightly better way of doing it because it's like, you know, that's informing the decisions. The evidence should inform the, the, the decisions that, that you make in your practice or in your, in your research or whatever it is, which I think is kind of like what you were saying there, but like, you know, science is, it's a process that is, it's constant on yours constantly adding little bits and maybe changing your opinion on this when this happens and, you know, not making these sweeping statements like, you know, Andrew Huberman or some of these (laughs) carnivore guys. It's because of that. It's because like science is, is 
the most precise form of imprecision that we can get because like mm. it's in it's inherently going to be an imprecise process like coming to the, a lot of these conclusions that we come from but it's the most precise way and the most replicable way that we have of doing it mm. um, and what worries me these days is because obviously there are those imprecisions within science and because we often get like conflicting evidence that m- leads to people kind of resorting to science denialism where people will listen to something and say look those scientists, they don't know anything that they're talking about. They're always saying mm. one or the other. That's, that's research. That's the yeah. way it works. It's and we have to take every bit of new evidence that we get and we add it onto the story. And that builds a bigger picture that we can then interpret. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, mm. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What's your time like, Richie? Are you... Um, uh, you I'm, I'm, okay for, I'm okay for a few more minutes. I'm enjoying myself, so I'm good. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about um, because one of, one of the other things that we were talking about, kind of taking a, a a road off here, um, was weight gain over Christmas and I suppose like Christmas eating behaviours, and um, because we're coming up to that time of year, um, for anyone that's listening to this in the future, it's you know, it's December, Santa Claus is on his way, um, but yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that because it's. It's obviously a very interesting topic, and I know Brian had stuff on his stories there the other day. It's just that people maybe getting a little bit anxious about the food environment and weight gain and stuff like that um, around Christmas as well. So, so, so I'm I want it's like to be very going to be let's say uh, PC in the way that I talk about this. Like, don't don't are, let it all out. No no no. Like I because I, I I want to be because there are a lot of things that I think need to be taken into consideration. But like, like if we kind of start with like the most obvious and the most obvious is that around the holidays, people gain weight, like simple as, you know, people always do on that. And that does fill people with a lot of anxiety. Um, but I think, and, and it's something that made me think of it a lot recently is because I've, I've been in the supermarkets recently and I've noticed that like since November, all of the Christmas products or even earlier, the Christmas products are appearing on the shelves right? And that's Christmas foods, like for Christmas dinner and stuff like that. It's desserts, it's like chocolates, they're all appearing and they're everywhere. So what's happened there is like, we've immediately changed our food environment, where suddenly, you know, we're surrounded by a lot more food options that we normally wouldn't have. And these are like very, very delicious, very, very appealing looking food options. So we're talking about in the lead up to Christmas, our food environment has changed to uh, an environment where it's much easier for us to get these like really, really delicious, really, really nostalgic foods that we usually only have around Christmas. And I think being able to enjoy them at Christmas is absolutely fantastic. Like I, I love mince pies. I love Christmas cake. I love trifle. I, man, I love that stuff. And I cannot wait for like Christmas dinner. But the issue is in the lead up, we've got people who are like having early Christmas dinners or early Christmas treats or like, you know, I'll, I'll buy a selection box and I'll, you know, I'll just have a, you know, one, one selection box a week, you know, on the, the lead up to Christmas. And again, that's all fine. You can do that. But if you're adding on top of your, your current diet that, you know, is, is helping you maintain weight, you're, you're seeing that people are kind of potential, have the potential to get into a calorie surplus well ahead of Christmas. And that's what leads to Christmas weight gain. I like, you can say like, oh, I had a massive Christmas dinner and, you know, I gained all this weight. Nobody in the history of mankind ever gained a load of body fat from having a big Christmas dinner. It, it doesn't happen. It, it, it just doesn't. Like, you, you know, you can pig out, you'll gain a tiny little fraction of body weight and that's it. 
but people will like step on the scales in January because nobody wants to look at it over the Christmas period. And I can understand that. Like, um, and they'll be like, whoa, what happened to me on Christmas day? Nothing, nothing happened to you on Christmas day. You had a lovely Christmas dinner, but you were eating a lot more over the course of December um, going into January potentially even in November, because like um, a, a lot of research comes out of the States and they say that like over the period between uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, that's when people put on all yeah. the year's weight um, because it's, it's the holiday mm. period. You know, you've got a massive like influx of food around Thanksgiving and that continues kind of all the way up to, to Christmas, New Year's uh, and people gain weight then. Um, and that's a very, very modern invention, I think, because as we become more affluent, we have more access to food. It is much easier to eat a lot of food um, all the time. And it's a lot cheaper as well. And people just tend to eat more and more and more because the food is available and it's in their face all the time. And like what I'm saying is there's nothing wrong with Christmas food, but like as with everything there, we have to moderate our intake. So like if you're adding a load of extra food over Christmas time, like weight gain is going to happen. But like if you're kind of like just keeping it to a couple of days around Christmas, like, you know, like I think it's absolutely fine. Like enjoy the food over Christmas. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to enjoy food full stop, but you're not supposed to kind of go on a, a bender, let's say from, from Thanksgiving until, until New Year's. That's where you, you can see people gaining a lot of extra weight um, and, you know, blaming it on one Christmas dinner is it's, it's just not logical. Um, but I, I, I want, like, I want to be really clear. I think people should enjoy food. Um, you know, like there's no need to restrict or be overly restrictive, but you have to kind of take that into consideration when your food environments changes and that is what is happening and food environment and food policy are the main contributors to like growing rates of obesity these days. Like, and like, I, I will, I will defend that vehemently because it is what we are exposed to. It is what we have access to that leads to our food decisions. Um, and our food environment is, does change considerably around Christmas time. Like, and like I, I really want to hear what you guys have to say about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I think with the, as you said, like the food environment, you know, like the advertising around christmas food and food advertising in general you know it's so aggressive you know and it's so and they have everything down like they just have everything down so perfectly like you know the colors the way they they do like food photography and food videography you know the way like i'm sure you've seen the way they 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 for say for example the mcdonald's burger the type of uh, skills that is required to make that look like a sexy ass burger in the advertisement to make you, to drive you towards McDonald's. And then obviously the burger that you get, it looks like shite in comparison to what's on the advert. Right. But you know, they have everything down to a T and it's like the colors and you know, the vote, the emotions that it evokes. And, you know, even like they, they use all the tricks in the book. Like, you know, it's looking at all these happy people eating this bar of chocolate or whatever it is. Like, and this is all, I think it all contributes to, you know putting off these little signals in our brains to say yes i want that i need to go and get that um that looks really really nice and that's like look there's obviously as you said a certain amount of that is good um and you know food is to be enjoyed but when you have somebody that's say you know 
has a poor lifestyle overall. Maybe they come from a low income family and maybe a low education background, you know, and they're sort of drawn towards these hyper palatable ultra processed foods, especially over Christmas. You know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult problem to solve you know, like it's, it's, I don't know how we're going to solve it. Like, you know, and it's, well, well, like one one of the things that solves it is going to be government intervention and nobody wants that. Nobody wants the government intervening. It's like, it's like when the government intervened with like taxes for cigarettes back in the day, like nobody wanted that or putting Mm. like those, um, those horrible, like, you know, don't smoke messages onto cigarette packs and the photographs and stuff. Nobody wanted that stuff, but it's there for a reason because it's, you know, to protect public health. Because the public aren't very, very good at protecting their own health in general. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, like, I think, as you say, it has to be uh, an intervention from from the government. Um, because it's, I suppose, and this is like, it's obviously an issue with like capitalism. This is a lot more, it's a lot bigger topic um, that we'll not really go into. We could probably talk about it all day, but like, you know, it's just this machine that is in, pro- that is in motion um, to make money and, you know, like even, even little things like, you know, the sugar tax and, you know, companies will say, oh yeah, we reduced the size of this uh, dairy milk, but it's like, then in the, in the next, uh, in the next, the, the next shelf over, they'll have like a dairy milk with double the size, you know? Um, so yeah, like it's fucking, it's, it's not, um, but yeah, so we will, um, I actually forgot that we asked questions on Instagram. Um, but I only got one question and it was from John Lynch for you, Richie. And he was just, he just said, how does it feel to be a shill for big protein? Cause you're working <laughs> for my protein. So, Oh yeah. Um, do you know, <laughs> so, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I, I do a lot of videos for, for my protein, um, on their YouTube channel. Um, when they approached me, I thought it was a joke at first. I was like, who the hell is, is contacting me about this? They're not actually from my protein. Um, but I put a lot of thought and consideration into, am I going to do this? Does this make me a shill? If it does, and it does, like uh, it makes me a total shill for the, for the company. Um, but the reason I did it is because there is so much absolute shite nutrition information out there that we, we can't, like I can't fight against that. Like, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm putting out like little drops of like relatively sound information into a sea or an ocean of absolute bullshit um, when it comes to stuff that I do on Instagram. So here's like my protein, which is a massive company. And they've got like, you know, over 100,000 followers on, on YouTube. They're trying to get more or something like that. Um, and they said to me, look, we're going to give you a platform to talk about nutrition. And I was very clear about stuff. Like I said, look, I'm not going to promote, promote any of your products if I don't think they work. I'm not going to speak about your products specifically. I can only talk about what's in them and what the, the science says about those individual products. Um, are you okay with that? And they said, yeah, they were really, really good about like what I, what I should say. Um, so they don't like veto anything. And like, if, if they come to me and say, would you like to talk about this? And I'm like, I do not want to talk about that. They'll be like, okay. And they come back with something else and that's fine. Um, and I... I'm happy I'm doing it. Like it, it takes mm. up a lot of time making those scripts for those videos, but I feel like I'm getting good information out to a, a wider audience than I could do on my own. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm happy about the, the work that I'm, I'm doing with them. Uh, I wish like some of the stuff that I've done on 
like um, I've done some more health related topics like stuff on cholesterol and vitamin D. I wish that was even more popular, but the, the really popular ones at the moment are like anything to do with protein or anything to do with creatine. Like I've got a video on there that's like, it's, it's getting close to 500,000 views um, on just on creatine. Like people yeah. eat creatine up. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> Um, yeah. but look, I, I'm, I'm happy to be doing it. Um, uh, do I feel like a shield? Yeah, partially because I'm working for a, a very, very big company. And also like, just so you guys know, because I'm, a, a, I, I publish academic like manuscripts, I have to write that onto every paper that I publish. That has to do with it. Like I have to say, yeah, I, I just, I declare that I, I work um, oh, as a content no. my protein, but like, oh, no. but does, does, does that mean that any research that I publish is, is bad? <laughs> you tell me. Now people it's are all invalid. Like, oh, yeah, but there's a conflict of interest. So there you go. If Richie publishes saying protein is good, then it's clearly just because he works for my protein. Exactly. Crap. Oh well. Yeah. You tried. I, tried. I, I did try, yeah. The lesson no, was uh, like the lesson the lesson learned, Bart, is never try. <laughs> <laughs> That was, that was a Simpsons reference for anybody that didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's class though. It's, it's a deadly platform and yeah, the videos uh, are very good and very well put together. So it's great. It's good to see someone like yourself being on a platform like that. You know, that's, that's what we want. Cause that's what we we're talking about. I don't know if it was on air or off air, but like just the, the audience and the eyeballs that someone who's talking nonsense can get cause they do so with such conviction um and they're eating a raw heart while they're talking like it, it's hard to fight against that as you're saying like with the amount of bad nutrition information that's out there so um when someone like yourself can put out good information um it's great and we'll be closely monitoring you to see you devolve into even more of a shill um <laughs> Um, just just so anybody knows if if anybody does see me turning into a shill let me know or if you see me just give me a slap across the face and just uh wake me up um you'll be be at guru status by then and so you'll just block people (laughs) good point actually yeah problem solved yeah um no it's great we should probably wrap it up here um Mm. uh, but yeah so first of all richie thanks for spending some time with us we we do appreciate you taking almost two hours out of a very busy schedule. Um, but if someone wanted to say, well, we, I know we mentioned the MyProtein videos. Those are on the MyProtein YouTube channel, I think. Um, but if somebody wanted to have a chat with you, um, was interested in looking at some of your, your content or maybe even some of your research potentially, where, where would they go if they wanted to? Yeah, uh, so like if you, if you Google Richie Kerwin, and there's no T in that, so it's R-I-C-H-I-E, uh, if you Google Richie Kerwin, like my Instagram will pop up. My Facebook will probably pop up. Um, uh, I've got a website, which is Be More Nutrition. So that's just bemorenutrition.com. Um, you can find me there, but I'm definitely most active on Instagram. And then if that's on Instagram, it's just be underscore more underscore nutrition. Uh, you'll find me there. Um, and yeah, uh, always happy to, to answer questions or chat with people there. And um, yeah, just Dean, like, I just want to say thanks for, for having me on, but you, you, it was great to chat with you and Brian, like haven't spoken to you in a long time and, mm. uh, yeah, it was just good to catch up and, and talk shit for a couple of hours. Yeah. And if you happen to contact Richie in DMs on Instagram, he can actually reply to you in both Spanish and Japanese as well as English. Um, 
I didn't get to throw that in there at any point in the podcast. So <laughs> yeah. this is where I'm getting it in. I haven't missed any languages. Have I? You don't speak more languages than that. Do you? Uh, no, like you, you could chant some French, but uh, like uh, it's been a very, very long time. I think the Japanese pushed the French out of my head. So <laughs> <laughs> Deadly. Yeah. I've started to relearn Spanish myself uh, on Duolingo. Um, good after language being language. pretty good at it in school and then not doing it since then. So yeah, I'm back at it on like a 99 day streak or something. So oh, sweet. Next, next time, next time we can do this podcast in Spanish. Vamanos. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will not be on because I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> Maybe Spanish. you'll be on holidays at that point. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, guys. Thank you as always for listening. Um, Richie, as I say, thanks for coming on. And yeah, we'll put kind of links for for everybody's stuff in in the in the show notes as always and yeah unless you've anything to add brian we'll we'll wrap it up yeah no just thanks thanks for coming on richie uh, always great to chat to you in person or virtually so yeah appreciate it thanks guys absolute pleasure all right guys thanks again we'll catch you in the next one